Welcome to the Peer Bound Podcast. I'm your host, Sonny Manivanan. Joining me is Leslie Patterson, the Vice President of Customer Advocacy and Engagement at BMC Software. Leslie is a seasoned customer advocacy and engagement executive with more than 20 years of experience in the software industry. Throughout her remarkable career, Leslie has demonstrated her expertise in building and reinventing advocacy programs for prominent enterprises like Oracle and Genesis. Leslie firmly believes in the transformative power of the customer's voice and has a wealth of leadership insights, such as how to develop trust within your team and deliver high impact results when stepping into a new business environment. Leslie, it's an honor to have you on the Peerbound podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Great to have you here. Why don't we start with your journey toward customer advocacy? How did you get into this space in the first place? I got into this space because I was in advertising, which was my major in college and toiling away at the bottom of the ladder in advertising, doing a lot of work, making not a lot of money. And a friend of mine was driving around a brand new Jeep. And I'm like, how did you afford that? He was working at a software company. And so I said, well, I don't really even understand what software is, but I want that Jeep. So are you guys hiring? They had some CSM positions open and I went and interviewed for them and failed, did not get the job. But during the interview process, they said, you know, we have this new role that's starting that's all around customer references, advocacy, was kind of an undefined umbrella, if you will. And they said, you'd be perfect for it. And all I heard was, I get keys to a Jeep. So, <laughs> so I took job and got into software, not really understanding much at all about it. But that was at Computer Associates back when it was the full name Computer Associates and did that for a little while. And then I've been in an advocacy type of role all but about four years of my career when I went into the indirect space. I was at Ingram Micro and I managed the Microsoft business at Ingram, which is a really great experience to see. So I understand both the direct to the business market as well as indirect. And I think that I've leaned on some of those insights and experiences throughout my career. But yeah, I've had a chance to be in really, really large advocacy teams and then also start teams from literally three people. I think through a lot of that, it's given me the experience and the perspectives that I have coming into, especially my latest adventure. So yeah, if you fail at one job, it doesn't mean that there's another one out there. There isn't another one out there for you. And the other lesson seems to be just keep trying until you get that Jeep. And I did. <laughs> wonderful. That's a wonderful start. And you've had some great runs at some of the defining companies in the industry. Would love to learn a little bit more about as you've grown both as a customer marketer and as a leader, what sort of new lessons would you say you had to learn over the various phases of your career and to get you to where you are today? Yeah, I think one of the biggest lessons that I learned was don't be afraid to fail and don't be afraid to own the fact that you failed. Nobody comes right out of the chute doing everything right the first time. And anyone who makes it appear that way they should really go into a career of playing poker because nobody is perfect. I am a big believer that owning your mistakes and owning your missteps, even as uncomfortable as they might be, that's one of the best growth lessons I've ever had. And that was someone told me that years, long time ago. And I've really taken it with me. And I 
I encourage that also, though, among my team, because if we shy away from owning mistakes, we're never going to learn. We're never going to collectively grow. And we're never going to know the power it feels to have a team supporting you when you need it most. And oftentimes that is when you make mistakes. So you clearly learned the ropes of customer advocacy at Oracle, which is, like I said, one of the defining companies of, of the industry. What were some of the key lessons that you took away from there? And how did that help you in your next roles at various companies? Yeah, Oracle at the time, oh my gosh, it was a very, very large team. We were under an umbrella within marketing called Global Customer Programs. And the way that the model was structured at that time, we all had, actually, when I first came on board, we were aligned by industries. And shocker, <laughs> if the sales team realigns, guess who else realigns? So we realigned. Right. We were by geo. And within the geo space, I had um, a region that had a lot of really large key accounts. And what I was finding was, I've got an account list of something like 65 plus at some points, close to 80 accounts. I can't possibly get deep with these accounts. And I was continually feeling like I was failing at delivering when we would get requests for much more in-depth and or higher level persona requests for advocates. And so I went to my VP at the time and said, you know, hey, I got a model I want to propose and don't fall out of your seat. But instead of having over 60 accounts, I'd like to just have five. But within that five, I will get you to the C-levels. I will get you the breadth within the accounts that we've been wanting. And I will drive the overall engagement for those accounts in a six-month period of time. They let me go do it. <laughs> and so I went and did it. And proved out that that works, that scale works. So we went from having almost no advocacy with one of the Fortune 5 companies that was on my list to we had them engaged in all sorts of different things, including speaking engagement, talking to analysts, even talking to the press at some times. Um, and that would never have happened if we didn't challenge the way that things were going. So it worked so well that we were able to actually completely restructure the way the model and segmentation for specifically that customer engagement team was structured. And it that structure lasted even beyond my time there. And it was one of the first structures that I wanted to bring in place when we left Oracle and went over to Genesis. I would love the opportunity to dig deeper with you now on, because you've got a great background where you've been entrepreneurial within these big companies and you've persuaded others to go try new approaches and do so knowing that you may still fail. And, you know, given the economic conditions that we're in now in the overall environment, I suspect that many of our audience also would like to try some new things, but they're afraid of failure. And we're just in that kind of zone right now. What advice do you have for these folks who are trying to do something entrepreneurial, who do have great ideas, but are nervous about rocking the boat too much? T tell us about that and what makes you so comfortable in doing that? The reason why I think I'm comfortable in it is I am adamant of having the ability to articulate what our impact to the business is. I like to do that through measurement of, you know, revenue influenced. Um, I like to do that by measuring engagement, by having those metrics backing up some of the fundamental pieces of the of the program that we run. By being able to fall back and say, we are making an, an impact and this is what it looks like, I feel like that gives you that safety net 
to where if you do want to go do something that's a little different, you've got that as your your backing, if you will. And it, even if people don't see that as your backing, by feeling that going into the pitch for something new or something different, that gives you a very different level of confidence in what you want to achieve and how energetic you want to go and fight for this new entrepreneurial different thing um, that you want to do. So I, if I could give any advice, it would be, you know, make sure that, that you really truly can articulate what your team's efforts and energies are, or if you're a team of one, what your efforts and energies are for your foundational programs, how those are impacting the business. Get that really tight. Have some stories to, to pull along with the data. Data alone is just data. Stories make that data come to life. Then, and only then, is it a good time to go and try and do something a little bit more entrepreneurial. What I have seen some people do is they kind of do the, I call it the shiny object syndrome, where they every time there's a shiny object, they want to go do it. And there's nothing wrong with that. However, what I see happen is a lot of people will get spread so thin, they feel as though they don't really do one thing real well at all. Yeah, I'm a big believer in keeping, keeping your house clean, keeping your house neat and tidy, because you never know who's going to come over for dinners. Love that. And thank you for sharing your approach. I think it's really refreshing and certainly a lot more, a lot more folks would, I think, be successful if they follow some of these lessons. I want to talk to you a little bit about Genesis. So you move from Oracle to Genesis, and every company is certainly different and has its own challenges. What were some of the challenges that you set out to solve at Genesis? And tell us more about that part of the journey. Oh, gosh. So first of all, I have, I really enjoyed Genesis. Genesis was a great, great company to work for. I still have a ton of admiration for Genesis. I love how their approach, they put the customer at the center of everything. That was definitely a draw for me when I came there. But what I would say that we were asked to deliver is we were in a situation where we were actually requested to come on board by sales because sales was feeling as though they were not having the, they weren't equipped with the right references nor the story behind those logos to really arm their sales teams to get a foot in the door with the business decision makers. That's hard for any software company. But at the time, they were a company that wasn't fully CCAS. There was an on-prem offering as well. And just getting the mindshare of some of those business decision makers isn't easy when, you know, the spend with a CCAS vendor is far different than the spend with an ERP or an HCM vendor or some of the bigger ones. We were asked to come on board, build a program where we could cultivate executive level advocates and then really find ways to take those stories that the customers have to tell, align business objectives and achievements with it, and then make that accessible to sales. So when we came on board, my team and I actually rolled up under sales for the first several months that we were there, which was great because it gave us instant street cred with the sales people because they're like, oh yeah, they're sales, they're one of us. So when we got pulled over into marketing, it was actually, it turned out to be a really nice thing in the fact that having that, that alignment with sales already, we came in and were able to hit the ground running once we hit marketing. That's a great experience. And then let's talk a little bit about BMC Software, which is where you are now. Tell us a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish here and what are the opportunities that you see? Yeah, so 
Here, what we're doing is there's a lot of similarities between what we did at Genesis and what we've been asked to do here. But here, it's all about creating a structure and governance around the advocacy program. What tends to happen in all companies, not just BMC, not just fill in the blank name of company, is there, if there's not a structured advocacy program, you're going to find pockets of advocacy happening, whether it's in even the sales organization, the product organization, CSS, you name it. And that is a surefire recipe for advocate fatigue. And it's also a surefire way for having different variations of the advocate story circulate around because everyone's going to listen with their a little bit of their lens versus that totally unbiased lens of just tell me the whole story. So we were asked to come in and build an advocacy and engagement program that would take that governance approach and really centralize everything. One of the things that I think is was appealing for BMC when I was talking to them before I came on board was all about the efficiency that we could deliver with the model that I wanted to bring on board, you know, being able to send one email out to a team of engagement directors and get six, seven, eight, nine possible advocates in the span of a couple hours. That was really appealing. But also being able to tap into that executive level persona, that is definitely an ask that has been, we've been chartered with. And I think we've got some really good programs in place to do that. But likewise, being able to tap into the power of the practitioner voices. Those practitioner voices can make a big difference when you're talking about things like peer review sites. Anyone who's involved in the Gartner Magic Quadrant, we know we have to have a certain amount of reviews on, on Gartner's peer insights. Those practitioner voices are your secret to success there. And it's really hard to scale and get all of those various personas inclusive of the practitioner audience if you're just focusing on one particular area. So we go and build things like an advocacy community where we can really collect all those individuals together in a virtual space and give get feedback from them. What are we doing well? What can we approve? And then also get them to raise their hands to do things like leaving reviews or to take a reference call with one of their peers or fill in the blank, whatever ask it is. We all know in advocacy land, we get a lot of asks and they come in all sorts of different times. Having that community there is, to me, that's a really good safety net. And some great lessons learned. And you're so right. Advocacy land can get very too many cooks in the kitchen quickly. And it's the customer advocacy team's role to manage all of that and make sure the customer also has a great experience. And thanks for sharing your lessons learned on that front. I want to ask you about leadership, which is a topic that you and I have discussed and certainly is very relevant again in this economic environment where there's a lot of fear in the markets everywhere and fear within teams, fear within companies, and certainly between vendors and buyers. Tell us a little bit about over your career, it really seems that you've been able to build a lot of trust within your teams across different companies. How do you develop trust and a sense of loyalty within a team? No, there's a couple different things. Number one, I never hide the fact that I am who I am <laughs> and I'm going to be, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to say really stupid stuff at times. And I think just having the the ability to laugh at that and be human 
among your teams, I think is one of the first things that anyone should ever do the minute they take on a team. Being human is just one of the first things you can do to create relatability among your team and to, I don't like having the feeling, I've been on teams before where whoever's leading the team feels, the other people on the team feel as though they're unapproachable or intimidating. I've been in that position far too many times that once I started having teams of my own, I said, no, 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 we're not doing that. I don't like that. I didn't like the way that felt. So I always want to make sure that no matter who I'm talking to on the team, I'm just going to talk to them just like I'm talking to you right now, Sunny. I want to just be real. We're all human beings. This is just our jobs is just what we do for our career and for our means for paying our house and our car and supporting our families. But that's not our number one job. Our one number one job is to be good humans for our families and the people around us and our neighborhoods and communities. So I think being human is one of the first things. The other thing is, at this point in my career, I have a lot of opportunities to be in front of our senior leadership. And I love that. But I also saw, most notably at Oracle, we didn't have that ability. There was a lot of situations where you would roll up a proposal or ideas, and then that was rolled up in senior leadership for you. And that always kind of bothered me because I'm like, I don't know that this is being rolled up the way that I would have rolled it up. So I'm a big believer in giving anyone on the team the opportunity to come on to calls with senior executives. I think having that experience and quite frankly, that exposure is only going to be goodness for them in the long term, even if it makes them incredibly uncomfortable. And it oftentimes will, but the more you do it, the more comfortable it gets. So I'm a big believer in having, look, this isn't just you know, Leslie's thing or Leslie's program. This took a team to pull it together. And there was probably someone who really owned a lot of the the heavy lifting within that. They should by all means have the ability to be talking about what they're so passionate about and present it and defend it if necessary. That's just another thing that, you know, I believe in. Plus, you get on one of my team calls, Sunny, you're going to get tips for hair care, probably a BOGO at some clothing site. If Lululemon's having a sale, you're going to find out about it on my team call. You're going to get tips for nail polish. And even the, we have a gentleman on our team and he's, I just love it. He's like, I just listen to y'all and I just love it. We try and have fun. We do virtual happy hours and we're almost all virtual on my team. So just having that bonding is really important. Just getting to know everyone to the point where you know what someone's going to do before they even do it. And just kind of giving them a little bit of, you know, ribbing them a little bit for that. I just, I'm a big fan of team camaraderie. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, you know me already so well, because you know, I love BOGOs and Lululemon sales. Nothing gets me going more than those two things. (laughs) So I'm just going to hop on your team calls and Zoom bomb all of you just for the discount codes, if nothing else. Well, today you would have heard about the launch sale at the launch. (laughs) All right. Perfect. And I'm privileged to hear it from you directly on this podcast. And uh, oh, it might be too late for our listeners by the time this episode comes out, but I'm sure they know to reach out to you now for the best, yeah. for the best of the biz. <laughs> My LinkedIn's going to be blown up. <laughs> What's the latest? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Let me ask you another question about leadership. There's, again, a lot of job changes in the last year. And Mm-hmm. folks stepping into new roles and le- new leadership roles specifically at new businesses. 
what would be your path to highest impact if you were in their shoes? What advice do you have for them? Would this be building a team or starting on a team, an existing team? Actually, both of those are pretty interesting. Perhaps we start with building a team from scratch because I think there are a lot of companies that have leaned out but don't know how to restart the engine because everybody yeah. that was working on these programs before was clearly adding value and it's value that these companies need. And now they're trying to hmm. lean it out and see what they can get. So what advice would you have for somebody who's an army of one starting in a new environment? And then we can maybe tackle the team question. Yeah, army of one, I would tell you, find what is going to make the biggest impact for your sellers, for your sales teams. That is going to be, if you're an army of one, your sales teams, as well as then your CSM teams, those are your ability to scale. Because an army of one can only do so much. There's only so many hours during the day you can work and so many days strung together before you're going to crash and burn. But really find out who your partners in crime are and leverage them. It's hard for me to put myself in the shoes of an army of one because I've actually never been on an army of one per se. But I remember when I went to Genesis, when we were still building, we were a team of just three. And we leaned on a lot of people who we, we were building relationships with to help us because three of us couldn't pull off some of the stuff that we were aspirational to pull off. We ended up pulling it off, but it was a lot of work and we ran ourselves into the ground trying to do it. But I don't think we would have been successful if we didn't lean on the other teams that we had alliances with. At that time, we rolled up under sales. So we leaned heavily on sales. But when we moved over to marketing, we found this amazing partnership with um, the CSMs at Genesis were rock stars. They were, they got it. And they were one of our biggest catalysts for success when we first moved over to marketing. So I think finding who your partners are in crime and really making sure that not only do you make asks of them, but you surprise and delight them with things that you bring them whether that's intel on something a customer shared on a call, on a reference call, or even just some information about some programs that are coming up. When you put yourself in the shoes of a seller, there's a lot of information that hits them every day, whether that's from events to various campaigns they need to be focusing on to even, quite frankly, SIFs. And then that's just getting to the sale Going through the sales process for, especially within software land and SaaS land, that's not an easy thing. And I don't know a lot, if a lot of marketing people fully understand the elements that go into getting a deal across the table. Sometimes the easiest part is getting the customer to say yes. There are a lot of complexities with that. So if you can make it easier for your sales allies and your CSM allies, if they're tasked with renewals or expansions, that's going to do you some good the long term. So from a team of one, that's what I would put my efforts and energies into just simply for scale. Because like I say, you can burn yourself out. If you had the opportunity to do what I've done a couple of times now is starting a team, not just from one, but from several is I, and I said this recently at a customer marketing alliance summit is start with customer engagement. To me, that model that your customer engagement teams and those are individuals located within regions throughout, if you're global, the globe, if you're regional within your region, where their job is to get to know who those advocates are within their region 
build relationships with those advocates side by side with their account teams because we never want to work in a silo. And then just really develop the relationship to the point to where we know exactly how these advocates want to be used. We know what they're approved to do from their external comms and legal teams, but then also finding and tapping into new personas within those accounts. So often you see advocacy where there's one individual at the company that was the advocate. Well, guess what? People leave companies <laughs> or people move on or people retire. And so it's a common challenge within advocacy land to not be single threaded. So your customer engagement roles are your secret sauce to getting breadth within your accounts. But then they can also be there the ones sniffing out who are the next latest and greatest advocates that we know are going to be the next shiny objects that everyone wants to hear from. And they go and develop relationships with them sometimes even before the sales are closed, the deals are closed. So they can really bridge that path to advocacy for the customer in a really nice way where the customer gets a ton of benefit out of it, gets the limelight they deserve, and doesn't feel as though we wore out the welcome mat. I would always start customer engagement. And that's what I did at both Genesis and at BMC. So I believe wholeheartedly in it, Sunny. So if I'm wrong, <laughs> I've gone down the wrong path twice. I think you've been right. You've been right and you've been right for a while now. And it's great to have that message come out and inspire folks at smaller companies who are starting these programs now, get thinking about the stuff in the right way. So thank you. Now that we're talking about advocacy, I have to ask you, you, you have built really strong advocacy programs at multiple companies. What sort of challenges or missed opportunities have you maybe seen in customer advocacy? Uh, or what big opportunities do you see now as you look at the landscape for customer advocacy? Oh my gosh. Well, one of the things that we have the pleasure of doing here at BMC is when we came on board, part of the group that we merged with and that came under my umbrella was our briefing center team. And I think that is an untapped potential for advocacy. We had a smaller briefing center program at Genesis and at Oracle, it was run on a separate team, still under global customer programs, but a separate team. But I see a lot of opportunities there for doing cross-pollination with advocacy, doing cross-pollination for customer engagement. We were just talking the other day about, you know, let's make sure that if we've got a group of customers coming in for a briefing, that if there's an engagement director that has several customers there, that they're part of that briefing and building the relationships and hearing what is it that the customers are asking about? What are some of the challenges that they're having? I think anytime you have a chance to be closer to those customers and hearing the customers use their own words and speak what their challenges are, that's goodness. But we, so that to me is exciting. We're also going to be doing some cool things with building some new briefing centers and just really taking a, a finer a sharper point to, okay, what can a briefing do for a sales cycle? And when should a briefing happen within a sales cycle? Because you think about it, a briefing in a really aesthetically beautiful location with the right program and content in place and the right feeling that can move the needle on a deal so fast. It's not even funny. Really being able to unpack that and dive into that, I think is really exciting. The other thing that we like doing is really finding economy with our customer, with our asks to our customers. So we always challenge ourselves with, okay, if I've got to go to a customer and ask for X, don't forget to ask for Y and Z too, because 
the less we knock on their door and the more we can package things up into one nice, simple package for them, that's goodness. The other thing that we like doing is taking the, after we get the yes from the advocate, oftentimes that persona is not necessarily in external comms and they don't even know who external comms might be. So doing a little creeping on and finding out, okay, who might their external comms people be within the organization? And can I take that ask off the advocate's plate? Can we offer, like the engagement directors, can they offer to say, hey, you've agreed to do this speaking or you've agreed to do this video or case study or this reference forum call? You need to have approvals. Do you think person XYZ might possibly be one of the ones to get your approvals? Can I take that to them and position it with them? That I think is a nice ask to the advocates. I Long ago, I had a, one of my favorite advocates at one of my favorite accounts when I was at Oracle. He said, Leslie, you just bring me everything in one nice big box and I'll take it and I'll get approval for everything all at once. I was like, that's brilliant. We had like a year's worth of activities out of him just by the one ask. So it was definitely the way to go. So I like seeing some of those things come and actually be applied in real in the real world and see what happens as a result. I would say the other thing that we love doing is some of the CABs or executive councils, as we refer to them at BMC, those are amazingly powerful events or meetings to have. I love doing those because you get to have a lot of conversations with the customers on the front end going into the briefings, making sure that you know exactly what's keeping them up at night, what are some of their challenges, what are their perceptions of the company packaging all that up and making sure that the agenda you're putting together not only is addressing those, but they walk away with some really great nuggets of learning or networking that they, the first question should be out of their mouth is, when are we doing this again? So we love pulling together those. And I think there's a lot of evolution that's happening in what you can do within the four walls of those executive level advisory board or council meetings. So. I'm excited to see what's happening there. It's not the it's not the cab meetings that you would have seen five, six, seven, even eight years ago. They're very different. So I like that. Tell us a little bit about community itself. How do you, given that most advocacy teams have a relatively low amount of bandwidth, but in many cases are supporting ever-growing customer bases, how do you do community management? How do you build these customer groups and communities really in a way that both helps your business and also is manageable within the limited bandwidth that these teams have? Yeah, I feel incredibly lucky in the fact that we have someone on the team whose sole focus is building a community for advocacy. I know that that is absolutely a luxury. I get that. But by having that, and if Oh, if I were rebuilding a team again, I would still ask for that because I think that that having that community gives you the scale that you can't have if you don't have that community. It's just, it's quite frankly impossible. So I'm a big, big fan of having those communities. And I think having the right people who have the experience on the platform that you select to run that community. So we're big fans of Influitive. I love what Influitive can do. I love some of the things that they're going to be doing in the future. So we went all in with Influitive. And I love the fact that the person that we have on the team running that, he knows it inside and out. And he knows exactly how to build the right 
community look and feel for the right persona. So we are big, big, big on communities. I think there's a lot of power with them. I mean, you can do so many different things with that community. You can do surveys. You can do voice of the customer. You can go and get all of your reviews for your review sites you work with. I mean, to me, when I look at review sites, I see a ton of value in the long form review sites like the Trust Radius. And there's just so much rich context you can get out of that. That's a more difficult ask. Your customer community is a great place to go and find those people who are so passionate that they're going to give more than just a single statement review. They're going to give that long form review. So to me, that's your ticket to some of the richness that really happens once the advocacy community is up and running. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing these incredible insights from your career to date. And I've certainly learned a lot from our conversation, and I strongly suspected that our listeners will feel the same way uh, when this episode gets released. I have to ask you, as we always do with every guest, for given that this is the Peer Bound podcast, we ask every guest for a peer nomination for someone that you would like to hear on this podcast as a future guest. So who would your peer nomination be? Ooh, okay. So it's someone who I don't know well, but I recently met her at an event in September in Oakland. And she impressed me a lot. There was a lot about the way that she she tackled challenges and some of the shared experiences that I've felt myself and her approach to them, I was really impressed with. So I would like to nominate... Sarah Steffen from Nutanix, if I could, and I need to give her a heads up. So Sarah, I'm coming your way. Sounds good. And hopefully we will have Sarah on the podcast as a future guest. Thank you for that. Ask her about her advisory board, Sunny. She knows what she's doing. Excellent. We already have at least one topic. Thank you. So the last thing that we do on these episodes is we do a quick rapid fire round. So think, you know, Coke or Pepsi, those types of questions. And we'll ask a few of these before we wrap up. And if you're ready for it, here we go. Let's go. Okay. First question, coffee or tea? Coffee. Okay. Does pineapple belong on pizza? Yes. So you're a big pineapple fan. Okay, great, great. Are you a city person or a countryside person? Countryside most of the time, but I will tell you there is nothing like a city during the holidays. One more here. Are you a summer person or a winter person? Winter. Okay. Because the countryside would be a mountainside. Let's just be crystal clear. (laughs) Yep. Fair enough. Fair enough. Excellent. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really a privilege hearing from you and learning from you. And I can't wait for this episode to go out. So thank you again. Looking forward to learning more from you in the coming weeks and months. Thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity, Sunny. 